Hi everybody, it's Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the Love Theorist. You may have come across my podcasts and if not, please go look for them and then this session might make a whole lot more sense. At the same time, I'm hoping it will make sense all on its own. I have the wonderful company here today with my very first podcast um, in the Love Revolutionary Stories. I have with me my actual daughter, my one and only daughter, Walia Eagle-Horbross, who you can see here on the screen with me. And I'm going to introduce Walia in a moment. If you could just bear with me, Walia, it's great to have you. <laughs> I just want to give people a sense of, oh, what do we, what do we step into here? Um, other than seeing two really, really uh, kind-faced people uh, staring back at people. Uh, so as the, as the love theorist, um, my interest is in building a theory of love. Now, is that self-evident maybe, but it's actually not that easy to do. So far on my podcast, I've been sharing a whole bunch of ideas and then it gets to a point where I think actually it's not only my ideas that matter here. <laughs> it is the ideas and passions um, and thoughts that people have in particular about love that I'm really interested in. And not just any love in any circumstance we might find ourselves in life, but I'm really interested in how people um, think about love in their work environment, how it might, in, might inform or inspire them in how they do their work, especially their creative work, but any type of work really, uh, where they're making a contribution at this time on the planet. So this is this is what my interest is, is listening to other people's ideas about what love is, the relevance of it um, in their life work um, at this time. And then once we hear a little bit from Walia today, I'd like to say her, ask you, Walia, what is it about your ideas of love that make it revolutionary as distinct from love just being a nice contribution on the planet? Yeah. All right. So that's a little quick blurb about where we sit, why we're sitting here today. Let me come to Alia. This is an auspicious moment for me. Uh, one of my grandest accomplishments in my life is sitting here before you. And for a long time, actually, since she's been born, it's been not much to do with me, everything to do with her, because she came in her own self. Um, but what, what's so exciting about the fact that it's my daughter, Alia Eaglehawk Ross, sitting here is that we are buddies in our parallel careers that intersect in all sorts of incredible ways, including uh, our shared vision of love and revolutionary love. We do it really differently. And uh, I wanted you today to get a really big head heart full of who she is and what she's about, because I think you'll just find her at least as impressive as I find her, if not more. Okay, so Walia is, if I had to be really formal other than saying she's my daughter and that we share some parallel paths in our work, Walia is the CEO of Revolutionaries. Uh, Revolutionaries is the most exciting boutique um, yeah, boutique would be a word small, but it potential is enormous. It's, its vision is enormous. So book company book company. Um, and it, it is inspired by love and inspired by the idea of revolutionary love, inspired by music and the love of music and Walia having built a theory in her very first book she published of her own on the, the fascinating um, intersection between being a fan of a musical group um, and who, who the 
idols are, who the performers are. And so Willie has booked this incredible theory which moves away from uh, fangirls being construct fangirls in particular being constructed as you know a bit unhinged a bit emotional to actually having a I believe a revolutionary perspective on the value of being a fan and of safe love as part of being a fan um, and in this instance um, Willie's whole book company has been inspired by a particular k-pop group BTS. Now I'm going to let Walia talk to you a bit more about it, but just to say, so Walia is the CEO of Revolutionaries, inspired by ideas of love, particularly as it's come through the lyrics performance relationships of BTS, the South Korean K-pop group, um, and and Walia is theorising about fandom as a member of the fan fan group herself. By the way, side comment: I'm also a fan girl of BTS. Never too old to be a fangirl of BTS. So, Walia, after that big moment of introduction, <laughs> anything you'd like to tell us about how you might like to describe who you are at this time and what you do? And then I'll ask you a question about what love means to you after that. Well, hello, Deanne. Um, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and thank you for a five-minute introduction. Um, <laughs> that that was epic. Um, sorry to everyone if you don't want to hear about me today. It's too bad. That's that's what you're getting. You're getting a whole lot of me. Um, yes, as Deanne said, my name is Willia Eaglehawk. Um, I am a writer, a publisher. My background is in sociology um, and also filmmaking, arts production, and a lot of other things like that. Um, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, <laughs> but doing all of that has led me to having this book company, Revolutionaries, um, and writing and, yeah, getting to create books. And Deanne is one of my authors. She was actually my first author. Oh, here comes a plug. All right. <laughs> and if you're not watching this on video, you will not be able to see that um, Deanne is holding up two books. <laughs> um yeah, and that's, I mean, that's who I am, right? Um, essentially, I am a massive fangirl and I have spent the past four years really dissecting what it means to be a fan and my own experiences of feeling like um, like I'm in love with this group BTS and the implications of this and what on earth is going on and why am I here and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's really led me to develop a lot of ideas on love um, because that's what it all comes down to and that's what BTS's main message is. So, yeah, that's that's where I am. So what was the question that you said that you were going to ask me? <laughs> Look, that's okay. So that's brilliant just to have your language to how you would define yourself is really what was great just then. Thanks, Walia. Uh, so, so one of the dimensions um, of your creative contribution at this time comes in under the banner of the BTS theorist. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that extends on your book publications around BTS, but all, all things revolutionary, really? Okay, so yes, the BTS theorist. This is a name that I've been carrying around with me for a few years because my background, as I said, is in sociology. My first book, Idol Limerence, um, shows my my first social theory on idol limerence, um, mm -hmm. which kind of I set out to theorize the fan idol relationship 
and the true love experiences of fans um, towards idols, which is single-sided, it's parasocial, um, it's all-consuming, um, and essentially how that's created, how that's socially constructed and perpetuated and who who benefits, who doesn't, etc. So that's really hard to bring to a global audience because people don't know what social theory is outside of academia nor do people particularly care. So how do I <laughs> how do I get these ideas to the people that they need to be with? Because essentially when I went to write Idle Limerence, I originally pitched it to academic publishers because I was like, well, it's a, it's a theory text, right? But then I realized, well, firstly, the publishers came back and said, no, this book is way too niche. Um, and so I was like, oh, had to really rethink it. And ultimately, what I came to is that if I were to publish pure academic writing, firstly, I'd be miserable because I find that very painful to do. Um, And secondly, not many people would read it. Even if every single person who was an academic in the world read it, that's not many people. And it's also not the people that I want to be reaching. The people who I want to reach are fellow fans and people who are interested in this. Of course, there are many academics amongst them, but I, I want to reach the masses. So that was my approach with the book. And now with The BTS Theorist, I'm trying to find ways to create, you know, engaging content online that shares my ideas and my philosophy and my theory um, in a really, you know, fresh, fun way. Yeah, just to reach as many people as possible. So when I, interesting, funny anecdote that is highly relevant to this, um, when I started really doing stuff as the BTS theorist, I told Deanne, aka mum, about the BTS theorist. And she's like, oh, I love that name, you know, the BTS theorist. And when we started um, really getting deep into the book that she's currently working on and what to do about this podcast that I've been asking her to do for year, literal years, um, when when it came to the branding for everything, uh, Deanne really wanted it to be something theorist and it to be about love. So we landed on the love theorist. So that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, so which, I mean, whatever we are related. So it's okay <laughs> to have very related brand names, which is really cool. So I hope that answered your question. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> uh, like to talk some more about how further to being a CEO of a book company uh, that's on about ideas that are revolutionary and really in the moment leading with the influence of BTS and many of the publish um, many of the authors might um, have talked about their what they have gained in their life by knowing BTS. Some of the edited books you've published have been in that ilk. And then the next one was, well, then where does the BTS theorist idea mm. sit? And it's just how how you kind of trying to reach out and connect with the audience for your books and also to have dynamic real-time conversations with people about things yeah. that matter. Yeah. That's so right. that yeah. So so in all of that, where does love fit for you and what is love to you? <laughs> Sorry, big oh, questions yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on. Love. Okay. <clears throat> so to make this very on brand to talk about BTS um well, firstly, of course, love. When I was growing up, you might recall, at least you, Deanne, not everyone listening will recall. <laughs> um, but from a very young age, I remember my mother sitting at a very old computer, I think a Macintosh, um, working on a very wide array of floppy disks uh, to write her uh, her PhD, which was um, all about the, the love 
ethic, the ethic of love. That was the name of the PhD. So that was when I was about eight. Um, Deanne graduated with her PhD, I do believe. So 22 years ago. <laughs> uh oh. Oh no. Okay. Anyway, let's not comment on that. Um, <laughs> so of, of course, of course, that um, that whole theory and philosophy underpinned my entire upbringing so of course this this is a language that I've had my whole life so when it came to BTS and I was feeling like I was free falling into this fandom it was totally out of my control and I came in at the end of a series of albums that they had done called Love Yourself so it was called the Love Yourself Era so that really interested me because, of course, heaps of people um, in popular culture, heaps of musicians can say words like that, although it's not common. Um, I think Justin P- Bieber yeah, has, a, has a song called Love Yourself or Similar. But it, it, it doesn't often, like, carry a lot of weight. Uh, I think his song is like, you should really go and love yourself. And it's like, okay, thanks. Cheers for the advice. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I was very curious to know what BTS do with this word. And of course, this word is uh, the self-love word and concept is mostly relegated to self-help kind of ideologies and spiritual kind of stuff. So it's not, it isn't common to see, especially men talking about it in complex and nuanced ways, especially not idols, musicians, very famous people. So I really got familiar with what they were talking about and there's seven members of BTS and each of them have their own interpretation of what it means to love themselves. And this was expressed throughout these three albums and also throughout their interviews and all of the other content that they created, you know, to support these releases. And I just found it very interesting because here's these people who are my age who are experiencing the same kind of currents that I am, although in a totally different kind of way because they're in Korea, they're famous, they're, you know, making a lot of money, whereas I am not, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of things that are different between us. So I thought it was very interesting. And um, the, the leader of BTS, RM, went and, well, they all went to the United Nations to represent young people. They are like ambassadors for United Nations. They're the voice of the youth and they regularly, well, they ever since they have addressed the United Nations every year. So they went to the United Nations first time. Um, RM is the leader of the group and he's also the one who speaks English. Um, so in, in these settings where Korean isn't spoken, he's the one who represents the group um, and speaks the most. And so he gave this speech um, all about who he is, where he came from, his insecurities, his shadows, and how he realized that he needs to learn to love himself and also to speak himself. And so that, if you ask anyone in the fandom, this that was like the most pivotal point in BTS's history, like, or at least one of them is right up there because like to watch these seven young Korean men all in suits addressing the United Nations General Assembly um, and talking about self-love while they're representing uh, the younger generations and also uh, like speaking to the younger generations. Oh, it was incredibly powerful. Um, yeah. So that, that was, this is all stuff that I kind of experienced when I first came into the fandom and I was like, this is very impressive. So not only do they, they talk mostly about how they don't love themselves. 
Um, and they also talk about all the complexities and nuances within self-love. And then through their, their actions, they are demonstrating what this looks like. And from there, what I, I get the most uh, enjoyment out of studying is what the fans do with that. And because of this self-love era through Love Yourself, um, ARMY, their fans, have this language for self-love. It's everywhere. Like every conversation you have with ARMY, they will bring it up and they will talk about it. So they, they're given this language, this way of understanding how to love themselves, even if they're not very good at it and all the processes surrounding it and the importance of it. And then through that, they have uh, BTS, I believe, have created a Love Yourself revolution because when you think about it, the amount of ARMY are in the tens, if not hundreds of millions. Um, and that's a lot of people that are now very literate when it comes to self-love and loving yourself. And um, I think that's very powerful. So that's how I have come to like really talk and write about this kind of stuff but not so much in how it relates to me or anything like that I'm more like studying the 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 patterns and um what people are saying and the impact of it and giving ideas for potentially what we could do with this kind of mass social power because I really do believe that through loving ourselves we can we can do anything and it's kind of the first step on a revolutionary journey to changing the world because I believe that just to to be a revolutionary is to change something and to inspire change and to enact change and the first thing we ne all need to do in order to be a positive revolutionary <laughs> um, is to love ourselves even when it's not easy even in, when we get it wrong um, it all starts from within and then it goes loving our family, loving our friends, loving our community and so on. So f everything kind of comes from this place of self-love. And, yeah, that's kind of where I got to in my in my first book three years ago. <laughs> and, and in fact, when you then had difficulty, I think you mentioned this a, moment, a little moment ago, had difficulty getting a publisher to pick up your first book, Idle Limerence, that's when you set up your own company, yeah? And have, in fact, I don't know how many um, authors you've helped get published who specifically are speaking their journey towards self-love inspired by BTS. Like you've, you've just got all these beautiful books that people have contributed their stories to. So to me that... What, so we're talking about the concept of love and what revolutionary love uh, is, and you're saying, you know, um, especially the incredible inspiration of BTS for your for your generation and other generations at this time, no doubt about it, is is this idea of showing as well as singing, showing through their relationships with each other, how they interact with the world, um, and obviously through their music, the importance of love. It was just such an absence in the public arena the word is not spoken in any deep nuanced way that people can capture so music as a vehicle for that but all their videos and all the content that shows how they are with each other has been equally important hasn't it because love is a relational capacity as much as anything so what so what I was going to just come and come to out of saying that is that 
it is incredible to me that people who are often, and in the stories that you saw from the people who contributed to the books you edited and published, people often were quite brokenhearted, yeah, quite lost in life or overwhelmed with pain in their life, and at, at a certain point have come to discover, literally discover BTS. And it's been a pivotal turning point for them, this message of self-love. Um, and so do you think, so both that that's been part of the incredible phenomenon that you're noticing, but do you think that um, when self-love is authentic and nourishing of life in the best sense of the word, that it will inevitably flow through into everything? Or do you think something more is needed for people to pay it forward, so to speak, so it doesn't become an inward-only narcissistic kind of expression? Right. Well, firstly, I don't think narcissists love themselves and I think that is the root of narcissism, right? ironically. <laughs> so I, mm. I think, I. so I guess the question is, is there a point where, where we need to do more than just love ourselves? Mm-hmm. But I think I think perhaps what we need to do is really expand our understanding of what self-love, uh, self-love mm-hmm. looks like. So mm-hmm. I think all we need is self-love. And in, in essence, if I fully love myself, it means I fully love my community, my friends, my family, and I enact this love through, like, I, I act it in many different ways in how I interact with people, in my contribution to the world, in how I am in every single moment. I'm more present. Um, you know, I, for example, I know this is a topic already on the podcast, but like, I am vegan. There we go. I love myself so much that I am vegan because I love myself enough to know that. I am in every single animal and I am in every single tree and I am everywhere in this world. Um, Therefore I will do everything in my power not to cause harm to myself because I believe that by eating animals, by cutting down trees, um, by, you know, burning fossil fuels, et cetera, I am essentially damaging myself because I see myself as part of the ecosystem of the planet as opposed to a person like alongside an ecosystem, right? So I, I think it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. So not that I've ever had these thoughts or spoken this in this way before, but this is just what I'm. This is just what I'm thinking, right? Like, it starts off as self love, but self love is revolutionary love in all shapes and form. It just, I, I believe that it needs to start as self. Of course, there's so many different ways around it, mm-hmm. but you can cut a cake in many different ways, right? But self love is ultimately the the very starting point. It doesn't mean that that's actually where you start off, but you know, mm-hmm. like that's that's an important starting point. Um, and you might you might come to it in a non-linear way. Um, like for example, you are a social worker of over 40 years. Um, doesn't mean that you started off as from a place of self-love and then went, oh, I'm gonna go be a social worker. Mm. Started off as something else, but doesn't mean that you can't come back to that. You know, and I think we've all got to come back to that as the the primary building block. Because if we're, especially if in the social work uh, practices or any kind of like nursing, any of these kinds of caring positions, if we are not looking after ourselves and loving ourselves, we actually truly can't show up properly for other people. And Mm -hmm. I think it really limits our capacity for loving revolutionary change in all these different spaces that we occupy. 
Yay. Thank you. Thank you for the shout out for my rather long career, which, yes, continue, <laughs> <laughs> continuing, continuing on. Um, so part of, like, it, there's a lot in what you're saying. Part of what I was picking up is this ecological notion of self. So often when we think of self, we think of the individual in the individual body, kind of like a um, self, self-determining free willing through life. But of course, we're in a whole set of dynamic material and non-material relationships so the self is not just our physical body and our internal stuff so I think that notion of what is self is is an interesting one to unsettle a bit um, and to help also unsettle the idea that love and self-care which is a big part of that is selfish yeah so there's nothing in what you were saying that was selfish yeah like it's about nourishing the self in ways that give us energy to be in the world in positive and loving ways yeah so so I think all of what you're saying is really inspiring and and really exciting and that means wherever you are and whatever you're doing um, we can be uh, revolutionary by being loving toward ourselves first and foremost. Like I, sometimes we get this idea of, and revolution, don't you think, is a concept that needs a bit of a little unpacking too. Um, and you've talked about it as a positive revolution. Clearly we're putting love right beside that concept. But most people's ideas of revolution would be like the French Revolution, you know, burning burning down the the, the symbols of, of patriarchy and, you know, of all the elites of society. And you think, no, 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 we're not talking about storming the Bastille here. <laughs> we're talking about little acts of loving kindness that build across all of us. And it's almost like a, 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 a consciousness change revolution from which everything else comes. Do you want to say something about that notion? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, firstly, in, in regards to what you are saying before about like the ecosystems and everything, I wanted to give a shout out. There's this um, wonderful uh, woman I follow on Instagram. She's goes by woke scientist so w-o-k-e scientist she's a medical doctor but she's also um she's in america she's indian and so she talks a lot about being removed from her country and not being on country and um she has a very ecological perspective to health and um i just i would recommend everyone go read her post like she does like a lot of long form free essays that you can read but she essentially talks about how like chronic illness is caused by capitalism by our disconnect um from trees and nature and all the different um, ecosystems and animals, etc. Um, yeah, so I think there is this growing movement of people understanding. And, of course, the, these are traditional understandings. Mm. Um, so these are just non-white understandings, essentially, mm. that mm. we um, that we are the ecosystem and that everything we do to pull ourselves away from it is actually destroying us. Yeah. Also, um, I wanted to speak to what you're saying about, like, how self-care is often seen as selfish. I, I just wanted to point out that I think everything we have been conditioned to believe is selfish. Like who conditioned us and for what purpose? Like why are we why are we feeling guilty about loving ourselves and being like what does selfish even mean? Who who cares? You know, why is that a negative thing? Um and I, I do believe that is like internalized capitalism because if we were truly selfish, we would not want to be cogs in this machine. We would not want to go and work in a factory or show up to our nine to fives. We'd be like, hey, actually I'm worth more than this and I feel a lot better when I don't do this. But if mm. we're taught that that's selfish, then of course we're still gonna be like, Oh, well, I just have to, I have to, because I can't be selfish. 
anyway, those were just some random points. And what was the what were we actually revolution- talking about? Yeah, no, all of that, and also revolutionary in the meaning of the word. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. So I think so. Our common understanding of revolution is still needed, um, and I think I haven't done enough to talk about this in my work so far because when I talk about the, my meaning of revolutionary and it's it's in the ethos it's in the mission statement of revolutionaries and you and I wrote it um we're we're wanting to reappropriate the word revolutionary to stand for non-violence um justice love um yeah and that's absolutely true because we ha- we do have to broaden our understanding of revolution and what part we're playing in the revolution so I'm talking to us the very privileged um, often white people, uh, not going to make any assumptions about who's listening, but like you and I, very yeah. privileged white people, um, yeah. we have to think about our roles because obviously we're not in a position where our rights are being directly taken away from us. We don't have to take to the streets and march or fight, though we can, but we can also contribute in other ways with our with our privilege and with our power. Um so that's why I think it's important to really broaden that scope. So I also want to say that it, it is still necessary to have demonstrations and to um, to resist and to fight where necessary. Not that I believe in violence, but I, like if you look all over the world, especially in um, North America, uh, people are fighting for their lives. People are taking to the streets because they have no other option. And I think, of course, I'm not going to stand here and say, no, we just need to sit at home and love ourselves. Like we have to know Mm. when the time to take to the streets is. We have to know when it is time to fight. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying, you know, but I'm saying that's, that is the reality. And we can't, we can't just like overlook that in this really utopian idea of revolution. I think everyone has a different role to play. And I think we all need to realise that we are part of the revolution and we need to play our part and figure out what it is and do it. And for the most of us, that will be sitting at home, loving ourselves, loving our friends, loving our community, doing the very small amount that we can because everything matters in the revolution, Mm. right? Mm. Even if we're not out there taking to the streets, even if we're not changing the world in massive ways as one person, all of these small actions, everyone loving themselves and loving their communities and being of service to one another will change the world. If everyone just stopped right now and did that, how different would everything be? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and so like we're canvassing some pretty big ideas here and I just happen to have some insider and I just thank you for what you've contributed already because I have some insider knowledge of what what your passion, how you're currently working towards your goals, I wanted to um, ask you to talk, if you would, about BTS not guaranteed. Now, let me frame that for you. So somewhere in your, it's very clear to me, and it's also the case for me, that you have in your vision of your whole purpose in life to make a loving contribution of some type. Now, how you're thinking to do it is very different to how I'm doing it. And one way in the minute to just get a real quick handle on on what your current creative work is, is this idea of BTS not guaranteed, which is linked to everything you've been talking about. But because it's seemingly such an idiosyncratic career goal, I think it speaks to some of the exquisite pain and potential of a love vision. Would you speak mm. to what you're doing there? 
Okay, so the career goal that Deanne just mentioned is that I want to write a book with BTS and I want to I want to do a lot of work with BTS if I'm being completely honest. Um, this has never been any secret, but it's like I'm at the point now it's four years into me, you know, making very strategic moves. Um, so I've just got to say it out loud a lot more. I want to work with BTS. Um, I have a lot of ideas, as you've heard. I have a lot of theorizing and I believe that BTS and I have a lot of work that we can do, a lot of conversations that we could have, a lot of books that we could write, a lot of videos that we could make, a lot of things that we could do together. Um, so I just, I have this, this very strong calling to work with them. And it's been, um, I've had it ever since I first saw their first music video and was like, who on earth are these people? And I must write a book with them. Um, although my language was a lot more colorful at the time, cause I was really like taken aback. Um, so this is my goal and this is my desire and it's been four years and um, I'm not getting any younger. I'm about to turn 30, you know, feeling feeling the, <laughs> um, the, the crushing weight of, you know, my own uh, mortality. Uh, so essentially, yes, I would like to write a book with them and I have um, obviously not succeeded in doing so, so far. But now is the time where it becomes my my sole focus and purpose. And, of course, everything I do with revolutionaries, everything else that I'm doing is in order to support this and it's all very um, interdependent, though not completely, of course, if I were to succeed with revolutionaries and not with BTS, I would. it's not like that would fall over somehow. Anyway, I want it to all rise together. What is it called? Uh, dependent co-arising. Um, that is the deep, deep ecologist whose name I suddenly can't remember. Joanna Macy. Joanna Macy. Go. Yes. So like, anyway, that's what I want. And um, I have really struggled in the past, ever since launching the company in 2020, I have had very um, severe health problems that have really stopped my my ability to do everything that I want to do, which is very confronting to be what I was 26 at the time supposedly in the prime of my life being like okay got a book publishing company got a great book everyone online's loving it it's like popping off oh I'm bedridden I can't get out of bed I can't think I can't talk I can't walk you know like yeah so that's been my story for the past three years it starts and stops and starts and stops and um I decided to write a free online book called BTS Not Guaranteed because I just needed somewhere Firstly, I had to get back to writing. Um, writing is how I express myself better than anything. Um, it is my my love language, so to speak. It is. It's just. It's how I how I think, how I exist in this world. It's how I communicate with the world. It's how I how I'm going to change the world is through my writing. And I hadn't written uh, in three years, and it was suggested to me that. All I need to do in order to feel a lot better is to write, <laughs> but that was where I was feeling most blocked. So instead of sitting down to try and write a whole book, I thought I'm just going to write one chapter at a time. I'm going to write exactly where I'm at and um, essentially I'm going to chronicle my entire life between now um, and when I meet and work with BTS. And the way that I'm going to be able to meet and work with BTS is because I've written this. So that's the plan. <laughs> um, so it's called BTS Not Guaranteed because I have all of these really big hopes and dreams, but there is no guarantee that they're going to come true. It's not as straightforward as being like, oh, hey, Deanne, I would love to have a phone call with you and I send you an email and make something, you know, like they are not accessible people. They are 
firstly, on leave for two years. Uh, mandatory military service has taken them from us temporarily because that's just what happens in South Korea for, for young men. Um, they are incredibly famous. They have millions and millions of people wanting to talk to them and work with them at all times. There is no way for me to contact them. So they need to come to me. Uh, and I can't make, I can't actually force that to happen. <laughs> I can just, I, all I can do is do what I do best and write and, and see. So that's where I'm currently at. And that's how I am healing myself um, practicing self-love, but then also sharing this process because I am a writer and I'm a creative, but I'm also a human and I do have um, quite a following and these people, my my followers, my colleagues, my friends, my fans, whatever you want to call it, they get a lot from reading exactly where I am because it helps them understand that they are not alone um, and that I'm just because I've published books or I have a book publishing company, I am no different to them and my struggles are exactly the same. And so it's been very healing for me and it's been very healing for everyone who has followed me all these years to read. Yeah, and it's just my current, my current expression of love and through that I hope that one day I'll be able to return to write a full-length book. That's my, that's my current goal. And that full-length book is going to be with BTS, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Wow. Hey, look, I probably know better than anyone sharing house with you at this time, just the story behind the story you've just told and just the day by day commitment you have to return to, to love yourself, to believe in what seem like impossible goals and visions. Um, and the more famous BTS have become, the more it just seems like it's an impossible for, um, possible dream um, and to make yourself so vulnerable in the world to be so authentic around that where you could be maligned and laughed at and ridiculed as just being a bit off the planet like doesn't everybody as you say doesn't everybody want to write a book with BTS um, that that I think that there's something as I said the word exquisite comes to mind and, and unfortunately most, a lot of the time for you it's an exquisite pain but to hold hope with that exquisite pain is I think uh, the vulnerability that a love vision calls us to to believe against the odds that something that is your that you feel is your life destiny will come to pass and you just have to make your loving dedication and taking what steps you can toward it is revolution a revolutionary thought don't you think well it's definitely a thought of change so therefore i suppose <laughs> by my by my own standards then then yes i, I suppose so um I mean, it just feels like what I have to do, right? It doesn't feel yeah. doesn't feel revolutionary. And I know I know why people can get reactive to that word when it's given to them. It's like, oh, that's revolutionary, because you're like, oh, please, I'm just trying to live. Like, <laughs> but um, if we all, if we all live our most authentic selves, then I suppose yes, that is that is revolutionary. Brené Brown, who some people are listening may and watching may know, is, well, first of all, a social worker, <laughs> social work academic in America, and she's done quite a lot of podcasts, and she talks about vulnerability um, as, as a deep expression of willingness to love yourself, yeah, to show up for yourself when maybe no one else on the planet believes in what you thinking and doing, yeah. And I find that also really a profound matter, but also suggests to me that it's quite a lonely path. And I wonder how you are in terms of your feeling of, of ability to stay connected with someone or something in the hardest moments of this big vision that you've got. 
Mm. Um, well, I am fortunate enough to still be living here. So I do see Deanne, the love theorist, uh, every day, depending on our schedules. Um, so I am very lucky in that sense because if I were living alone, I think it would be a lot more difficult. So I, I do always have someone to talk to and thankfully, thanks to the internet, I, I have so many people that I can talk to. But ultimately this is I am currently in a phase of my life where I just feel like I need to do this part alone. It's not it's not the time for being mega like I feel very connected, uh sometimes. Um, but I don't need I don't have the capacity to actually go out and connect with people because I am so absorbed with my work. Um and that comes and goes. So yeah, it can it can be very lonely, but I wouldn't necessarily want to be with people anyway, or I wouldn't want to be any more connected than I already am because I need to, I need to stay focused. Um, and also I think because I am an only child and I was raised by a single mother who is a social work academic, um, working full time, I am used to being alone and I don't, I really don't mean that in a negative way. It just means that like, I'm just used to a very, uh, quite a solitary life, um, so it's not like I came from a huge family now and I'm, I'm struggling because I'm not feeling as connected as this is the amount of connection I've always had. Um, so of course my, my relationship with my mother is the most integral one. Um, but if everything goes well, that means that I have to let that go as well to some degree, because I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be in Korea, which is very, very far away from here. So yeah, it's a very lonely path, but it's a necessary one. But, of course, if you were asking me if I were at a low point, maybe my answer would be different because um, it would be a lonely – yeah, it would. I would still say it's a lonely path and it's necessary but it's bloody miserable. <laughs> but, at, at, you know, from a high point it's, it's, not, it's not miserable and I know more community, more connectedness will come through this and I am feverishly community building online. And then uh, when I get to Korea, I my plan is to establish very strong connections within um, the creative community there as well. So, yeah, lonely, but it's necessary. Thank you. And um, somewhere in our conversation, which has been incredible, rich, expansive, um, you continue to inspire me every day, including right here, right now, um, you mentioned that we understand, you and I understand love as a mix of uh, Bell Hooks's, we didn't mention a name, but Bell Hooks's idea of the love ethic um, and that we are putting right beside that uh, two other really key ideas of nonviolence and justice. So it's a bit, and this idea of revolutionary catches that as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of learning about what nonviolence looks like in, in loving yourself and in, in your practice and in your relationships because, as you know, what Bell Hooks says is where there is love, there is no oppression, and that's one of the most important influences in my practice. Do you want to talk about that concept of nonviolence in relation to love? Well, firstly, I think it's interesting. So, I, I mean, I'm right there with you in regards to Bell Hooks. Of course, this is the governing ethic of my entire upbringing. <laughs> um, so I, I cannot avoid it, nor can I disagree with it because I, I do agree with it. Um, but also it's interesting because we may have all the love in the world for ourselves and one another, but we are still oppressed. So that's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting to kind of get that real nuance. So I might, I might not be oppressing you, but we are both oppressed. Um and we may love each other, but 
our relationship might be oppressive. You know what I'm like? It, it's very, it's very um, complex. So nonviolence, that's really interesting because I have been fortunate enough to not ever need to think about it <laughs> because my, my upbringing, my entire life has not had any violence. Um, I've observed a lot of violence in the world, but it's just not, it's just not as prominent for me. So that is of course a very privileged position to be in. I think nonviolence is key to being revolutionary and revolutionary self-love practice. So what I what I spoke about before is uh, veganism. That is my my best example of how I consciously practice nonviolence. And of course, it's not we can never take a purist approach. We can never be one hundred percent nonviolent in every single thing we do because, like, I might drive on a road and that's burning fossil fuel and that's coming, you know, from an extractive industry, which is violence upon the earth. I go to the grocery store and even though the food that I buy is vegan, it doesn't directly support the animal uh, agriculture mm. industry. The the shop, Woolworths, Coles, Audi, whatever, they're still supporting the industry. I'm still mm. giving them money and they're still paying their stuff wages to go home and eat other, you know what I mean? Like it just goes on like iPhones, mm. Like people, people die to make iPhones and that's, that's also coming from an extractive industry. Like, so anyway, it's, it's pointless to mm. try and be a hundred percent, but everything that I can do, I am doing. And veganism is the number one thing I can do to ensure that I am living by my own guiding principle of nonviolence. Um, so there is no way in hell you will catch me ever, ever consciously, knowingly, um, eating an animal or eating anything from an animal or buying anything from an animal that has exploited an animal. Um, because that's just, the, I feel like that's just the bare minimum that I can do. Of course, then on top of that, it's like, well, was this, was this shirt that I'm wearing made in a sweatshop? You know, like we, we could go really far into it as like how exploitative of every, everyone is everything that we do. I can't, I can't control everything. I don't have all the money in the world. Maybe if I were a multimillionaire or multi-billionaire, I could control that but then I would also ask how did I get that much money Mm. um because I don't think you can become a billionaire without exploiting someone somewhere um so I think non-violence for me which is the only way I can really talk about it is um veganism and it's in my day-to-day interactions with people and the only way that I can ensure that I am non-violent in my interactions with people is to make sure I'm non-violent with myself um, because that's the only way that I can model that behavior and to learn it and to know it. So once again, it's one of those things that comes from within and to know what behavior is okay and not okay from, from myself to myself and then enacting that outwards to other people. But nonviolence and veganism, for me, they go hand in hand and that is really the, the best thing that I can do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So, so like there are notions like tough love and you've got to be cruel to be kind and there's so many, you know, we could go on about the social norms about what love is and, you know, through to another dimension that love is about that sexual intimacy between people. You know, we're not talking about tough love. We're not talking about being cruel to be kind or, you know, having an intimate sexual relationship with someone. You know, we, we're much more talking about um, love as a, 
yeah, a genuine commitment to the best possibility of ourselves and our contribution to the world, yeah? Within the constraints, it's kind of like what you say, there's an intersection, intersectionality that can happen for us all in different ways around what's oppressive and discriminatory. And just being a female on the planet sets us up as a social group, for example, to have experiences of violence that are just so concerning and second only to the violence we do to animals by virtue of gender. Now, this is cross-cultural and cross-economic status and all sorts of differences, but women are, as a social group, collectively, but not necessarily individually, yeah, oppressed because of their gender through interpersonal and other types of violence, including war. Um, So, like, I find it really hopeful to believe that no matter what the systems of society are, um, the economic system in particular, what the discriminatory patterns are and how people are picked up and kind of mauled and made, you know, heartbroken to some extent by the discrimination they can be caught up in um, by virtue of their, you know, identities and what's important to them. I find it I guess I'm holding doggedly to the idea, and this is my question to you, I hold doggedly to the idea that love always matters, no matter the circumstance, no matter how oppressive um, and how little control we might have, that love always matters, yeah? Um, And maybe that is just too naive in this world that we're kind of saying can be highly oppressive to people, yeah? Do Do you think love is enough, that love always matters? I think love always matters. I'm not sure. It really depends. Is love enough? Like if mm. if we were in this house right now, no income, poverty stricken, but loved each other. Yeah, love is enough maybe emotionally, but all of our other needs are not being met and we could still die, you know, mm. like therefore it's and then if we're valuing our lives and wanting to be alive, therefore love is not enough. So I think it's a very complex thing. Mm. But I think philosophically, yes, love is something that we can control. So in so far as things that we have control over, our own agency, yes, love mm. is often all we can do mm. um, and pivot to love from, you know, places of injustice or violence. Um Oh, brokenheartedness, like finding ways to, so I was just quoting um, Dr. <laughs> Deanne Ross there, but um, that's, all, that's all we can do. So like, for example, if we were, you know, uh, starving, sick, and we couldn't do anything about it, then love is all we can do. Uh, mm. Therefore, it, it, it has to be enough because we don't have uh, anything else to control and we have to find solace in that. So I think in all of our in our interactions as a guiding moral and philosophy and principle, love love is uh, the starting point and love is from which everything else springs forth. But it's not all we should do, but it Mm. is enough within itself, but it's not not our end point either. But it still encompasses the whole journey. It's a very, um, (laughs) yeah, it's a very fluid kind of dynamic, ever-evolving concept. Um, Just like if you think about violence or power or any of those things, it's not just the the simple definition because we're talking about it in a a social, psychological, economical, ecological, political uh, environment. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I know that might not make a lot of sense, but that's yeah, my current did. feeling. <laughs> no, it did. And look, I just have one last question, which picks up mm-hmm. on this concept of justice. And as you know, I, I talk about justice as um, being eco-justice to include humans, other animals and nature. Um, and one of one of my favourite little catch concepts that I hold in my mind is that a love is needed for justice to matter. Would you agree with that? Yeah, otherwise why would we care? I think that's the point, right? Like so yeah. so I think we have to think about what is our what are our guiding values, ethics, morals, principles, etc. And if love is not in there, then a lot of these things wouldn't matter. If we didn't love ourselves, if we didn't love other people, if we didn't love our country, the trees, other animals, who cares? Just roll over and die, right? Like I know that's really nihilistic, but that nihilism does often come from a place of like, well, I don't actually care. I don't love it. Um, so we can just get rid of it. So of course, love is love is the basis of everything, right? So yeah, there would be no justice if there were no love. And yeah, there would be uh, no love if there weren't justice either. You know, like it, it's a very, well, love would prevail, but I am a, a bit like uh, romantic in that sense. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's integral to everything, I believe. Like this is not a walk in the park, easy, low-key conversation just over a coffee. This is a deadly serious, high-order philosophical statement of who you are and what you're doing in the world and the incredible alignment between how you're living your life and these concepts. And uh, I, I think about these ideas often in all sorts of ways, but I, and particularly I think about in terms of our relationship and how meaningful it is, you know, how fair we are with each other, how nonviolent, how loving. And because it's that day by day when in your unguarded moments, when it really matters, you know, not what I'm espousing in a lecture room or writing in a book, but in those actual relationships, yeah, unguarded moments, how we are. And um, I just thank you for being on this journey with me and helping me learn about love in these ways and continuing to educate me right here and now as well. Well, the feeling is very mutual. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Would you like to make any last comments, given that this is our My Inaugural uh, (laughs) podcast on revolutionary love stories? This is is your revolutionary love story at this time. Oh, oh gosh. Well, if I'd known that, I would have come with a different story, but... um... You would? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I would have put more effort into preparing. Um, essentially, about I don't know an uh, an hour and a half ago, I was like, "All right, let's do the podcast." Um, so we did not prepare. But uh, <laughs> although this isn't just an everyday conversation, it is a lot of what we're talking about is what we talk about every day, um, which is why we can sit here and have these conversations. And if we, you would ask me these questions tomorrow, I probably would have a lot of different things to say as well. Like it's a it's a very it's a very big topic, and of course, um, just wanted to give a shout out because Deanne is in the final stages of preparing her book. Um, I'm currently editing it. She's currently editing it. It's going to be out really soon. And so these, of course, are conversations that we're having all the time because the book covers all of this ground and more, which is very exciting. And um, I'm really looking forward to. I'll probably do an interview with you, Deanne. And we can yeah. put it on this podcast, um, but oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one asking the oh. questions. Um, yeah, so everyone should really look forward to that. And that, those are my final last words. Thank you so much for having me. 
Oh, look, it's been my pleasure. I just couldn't begin this subsection of the love theorist without you going first. You're my main inspiration in life and my main buddy, and we just do some cool things together. So thank you. Go well. Hope all your dreams come true in perfect time for you. Yay. Thanks, Valeria, and thanks, everybody, for listening or watching. We're just really grateful for the fact that you're interested in what we have to say and who we are. Thank you. Bye, everybody.